this week on the Back Table Podcast. Uh, I, I still can't believe it happened, but uh, I was between cases one day. And so early on, you know, walking down the hall in the Renkin Institute, walk by the place where they have, uh, where they were doing the angios. And on the monitor in the room, I could see a catheter down a leg. I knew it had to be an angioplasty. So I walked in and said, hi, mind if I watch? Because I'd never seen one. And so he says, no, come here. So I, um, so he put the wire through and then a uh, catheter comes down. Okay, I understand that. Then a balloon goes up. Ooh, I didn't know they were using balloons now. It turned out that was the only place in the world that was. <laughs> uh, and so balloon then after a while goes down, catheter comes back, squirt, arteries open, really cool. So the guy's taking off his gloves. And I said, gee, that's really neat. I'd never seen an angioplasty before. Hi, I'm Dave Cumpy. He says, hi, I'm Andreas Grimsick. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things IR and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes on our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and backtable.com. This episode is brought to you by Boston Scientific. Boston Scientific has just released the legacy study data confirming Therosphere as a new adjuvant or standalone therapy in treating HCC. 98.6% of patients responded with just one treatment as Therosphere, with 93% overall survival at three years. Visit bostonscientific.com forward slash legacy to learn more. This is Peter Horner as your host this week, mm -hmm. and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, neurointerventional radiologist, Dr. David Cumpy. Thank you very much for being here, David. Good morning. Thank you for having me. You've been around for quite a while, and you have a lot of things to share with us uh, regarding the history of IR and your wonderful career. Could you just tell us a little bit about your background, and then we'll... We'll go from there. Yeah, usually uh, I like to look forward, uh, not back, but I do have this presentation on some of the stuff we'll talk about, and the residents and fellows like it, so uh, maybe it's uh, okay, but that's the way old people talk. This is the way things used to be, you know? Anyway, I grew up in northern Kentucky and went to school in uh, Ohio at Oberlin, and so when I went to medical school, it was Harvard, and uh, Boston was a big change. During medical school, uh, I was uh, always going to be a surgeon. And then uh, sometime in my, uh, I think late in my third year, I met a really inspiring teacher, Lucy Frank Squire, who got me interested in radiology and I enjoyed it. And so I thought maybe that could be an alternative. Now, this was the era of Vietnam, and that forced you to make a decision in medical school. Because uh, all docs were going to be in for two years. Uh, you just were not going to get around that. You either took your chances but then got drafted as a general medical officer or you got you enlisted and got a deferment so you could finish your residency, then go in as uh, whatever specialty you were. Wow. And I was really on the fence about radiology versus surgery, but you had to choose your specialty. And so I took a flyer on radiology. <laughs> and... Uh, I did a surgical internship at Columbia, then got back uh, to Boston, the MGH, for residency. And <laughs> one interesting side note, how perverse uh, my outlook had become. Uh, after I got back to Boston after that year in New York, I immediately noticed the slow and easy, relaxed pace of life in Boston. <laughs> okay. And um, how did you then finally uh, get interested in IR? I mean, this was, was this even a field at this point? Well, hell no. I mean, it was... At that time, uh, you never heard of this, but um, I was a general radiologist. That was my uh, residency. So it's all x-rays, right? So you, I had two years of diagnostic radiology and one of radiotherapy. And I uh, liked angiography because it involved procedures, and I was interested in that. But at the time, man, the MGH was a backwater. <laughs> uh, this sounds almost unbelievable, but uh, on my angio rotation, I had done one angio. One. Wow. My second angio, I was the staff and I was assisting and teaching another doc who had no angio experience. Uh, and we did a thoracic aortogram on a 23 year old looking for an aberrant subclavian, which she had. I mean, what could go wrong with that? Hey, <laughs> I, uh, I did finish residency without doing any major damage. And, uh, one of the really most fortunate things in my entire life is, uh, met in Rosemary and uh, we got married before we left for my military. Uh, and uh, she was our physics teacher. She was in charge of getting us through the residency uh, and getting us through the physics section. 
and uh, it's always good to marry somebody smarter than you are. And boy, did I ever. <laughs> and she's taken care of everything ever since. She's really responsible, giving me all the time I needed to develop this career. After residency, I go to NIH. I had a core deferment, which meant Navy, and that's where the public health service is. And I got accepted as a, a fellow or whatever you want to call it at NIH. Hmm. And this was a great assignment. I mean, uh, this is as good, I think, as you could get with a military hitch. Uh, and so uh, we were... Uh, at the clinical center. Now, this is this giant brick building. It, it, at the time, it was the largest brick building in the world. I don't know if it still is. And uh, it's this huge, it's a hospital, but that's mostly research and labs and stuff. So proportionally, there were very few patients there. We were doing the diagnostic radiology for those patients, and they had all these different specialized diseases. Uh, there were four of us every year, the, the, the fellows, and that's where I really got my first training in angio. The guys who are now second year, we during our first year, there were they were all really sharp. This was a plum assignment, and these were all really top flight guys from top flight programs. And two of them were really interested in angio, knew a lot, and they're the ones that first taught me something about angio. But that's where I also that first year did my first interventional case. So it's uh, what was your first interventional? <laughs> it's Friday afternoon, and the surgeons come down, and they got this lady with a GI bleed. Now she's on there. They had a hyperparathyroidism program, and this lady had really, really severe hyperparathyroidism. You know, skinny and weak, and all sorts of stuff. And she commenced to bleed. It was bleeding out, and the surgeons really, really didn't want to operate on her. But sure. uh, they at least wanted to know, could we tell where the bleeding was? And I knew about angiography for GI bleeding. And so I said, sure, we could do that. <laughs> so I did an inferior mesenteric, and lo and behold, is this is beautiful. Uh, she didn't have much bowel motion. We could even subtract it. Uh, bleeding point in the sigmoid. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but like I say, they really, really didn't want to operate. And I knew about the work that Stan Baum had been doing with uh, infusing patrescin for GI bleeds. So I suggested this to him. They said, oh, yeah, if you could do that, hey, that'd be great. So uh, I called the MGH, trying to get hold of Stan, and I got Chris Athanasoulis. And he just gave me the cookbook. He gave me the recipe. Uh, you know, you give the pat patrescin 0.4 per minute, uh, and you do that for, oh, 10, 20 minutes. Then you come back 0.2 per minute, and eventually you turn it off. And uh, so we did that and uh, did a follow-up angio in, I don't know, half an hour or something like that. And it was beautiful. The, the right-size arteries had shrunk down. The bleeding was gone. And, and, and it stayed gone when we finally turned it off. And we had just saved a life with a catheter. And, man, I was hooked. That was, oh, boy, this is what I want to do. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. We, we forget the microcatheters haven't always been available, right? And uh coils and all these things that we take for granted these days. Uh, yeah. Need treatment uh, to be involved, have to offer. Wow. What a great story. Wow. Well, um, at that point, did you have any mentors that um, come along this? Yeah. Been, well, have kind of the, the field was developing and, and you have mentors that some people have an experience in one area or another. Can you maybe explain some of uh, who your mentors might've been? Oh yeah. <laughs> did I luck out with mentors? I had I, I, some of the most prominent and, and, and best people I could have possibly had. I'm almost an historical artifact because I, I had so many of these guys. So the first was John Dotman. Now, uh, he came back to NIH my second year as the chief of radiology, and he was one of the real early giants of uh, interventional and of diagnostic radiology. Uh, and I had a year with him. Now, there were four of us each year, the guys who came in the second year, so now there are eight of us. And of that whole eight, I was the only one who uh, liked angiography. And so pretty much I had John to myself that year uh, teaching me stuff. And I learned spinal arteriography and adrenal vein. This is 1975, man. So spinal arteriography, adrenal vein sampling, uh, parathyroid sampling, uh, venous sampling, and arteriography, parathyroid arteriography, ablation, mediastinal adenomas with a catheter. And some early embolization, wow. and uh, you know that was really sophisticated for the time. I was able later after I left NIH, John and I became friends, and I could uh, ask him for advice, and I did, all up until he died of myeloma. He's he's my real hero, wow. and the stuff that he did, uh, people are even today just constantly uh, rediscovering. 
Uh, I mean, I was at a SIR workshop with Scott Trertol on uh, adrenal vein sampling, and he'd gone back into the literature and was just amazed at what uh, Dotman had published. He was talking about that. And then one of my other ones, one of my real current bugaboos right now, is that embolization of mediastinal parathyroid adenomas has virtually disappeared. Uh, I've been trying to get this going again by giving lectures. I've been able to do that and talk about it at uh, WACE, but not at uh, SIR so far. And there, it's just disappeared. I, and it's now really quite uh, much better with microcatheters. And it's a procedure that's been around 40 years. And nobody's doing it. And so I really want to get that started again. That's funny, Dave, because I've done two in the last like couple months. So. Have you really? So you're doing it here. Yeah, yeah. We use alcohol in the pie at all. It works. Yeah. I Excellent. I cannot fathom how you would do that with a, without a microcatheter. You had to push hard on the catheter to get it to the right place. <laughs> That's unbelievable. I mean, were you guys steaming catheters to make? Oh, sure. All that right? Yeah. Yeah. We'd have pigtail catheters for aortograms and you'd use catheters multiple times. So uh, when the tip got a little crummy, you would uh, cut off a little of the tip of the pigtail and reuse it. And uh, one of the cases I saw, I, ne I never, I n don't even know where this case came from, that somebody had shaved the thing off so it was, the pigtail was almost more like a C than a pigtail. And they had done an aortogram and the damn thing popped back and then selected an intercostal. <laughs> and it was the most uh, dramatic uh, example of seeing an artery of Adam Kevich that you ever saw, uh, ionic contrast, and the patient never walked again. Right. Uh, it just, you know. <laughs> Well, thanks for pronouncing that uh, name the correct way, too. Well, good. Well, um, well, were you always at the University of Colorado? Or you, you weren't, right? You, uh, no, no. Uh, no, actually, I started at the University of Maryland. Uh, Rosemary was already teaching physics there. Actually, I did my first neurointerventional case there. Um, this was a 12-year-old kid, auto accident. Uh, there is a CC fistula. And uh, the neurosurgeon, Ron Paul, had tried to fix the thing, and it hadn't worked. He was a really open-minded guy. He came down to radiology and asked if we had any ideas. So I went off to the literature and found this article by uh, Prolo and Hanbury. And John Hanbury was the chief of uh, neurosurgery at uh, UCSF at the time. And they had this procedure uh, where you would take a, you'd, you'd do a cut down of the carotid and take a Fogarty catheter and put it up the internal to where the hole was, put it through the hole into the cavernous sinus, blow it up, pull it back against the hole, and then uh, sew it into place. So you then uh, fold over the shaft, cut it off, and sew the, the, the two sides of the shaft together, and then sew that into place and close the carotid. And uh, so I suggested this to Ron. He said, well, let's try it. So we went off the OR, and uh, we were listening to the brewery with a little ultrasound over the superior ophthalmic vein. And I put the, uh, Ron did the cut down. I put the catheter up, put it in the cavernous sinus, blew it up, pulled it back. And man, it was like a charm. That brewery just disappeared. And uh, there was a whooping and hollering and uh, high fives. Uh, and uh, so uh, we showed it into place and everything was great. Uh, the thing Prolo and Hanbury didn't mention was that it's a semi-permeable membrane. Mm. And after a few weeks, it started to collapse. <laughs> so the brewery came back. Uh, not as loud, but it was there again. So had to do something else and uh, needed to put some plastic up there that would, something that would freeze and not leak out. And uh, I did some more research. Uh, there was a, a thing called HEMA out in California, but you couldn't get it. But I found a guy in Baltimore. He did facial prostheses, cute little old guy, this beautiful little uh, custom shop. And uh he explained about this plastic he was using. It sounded like it might work. So I tried a little bit of it. Looked like it might. So I brought some of this back, practice for the TB syringe. Then we took the kid back to the OR, cut down on the carotid, got out the, the catheter again, uh, un straightened out the shaft. I took a TB syringe with this plastic and a TB needle uh, and uh, put it onto the shaft and squirted in the plastic. And the brewery disappeared again. Wow. And that time it stayed gone. And uh, it fixed the kid. Uh, he wrote me about 10 years later, sometime when he was in his 20s, again, thanking me and uh, uh, how, how he was doing really well. <laughs> so it was kind of the Wild West. So you, you probably couldn't do that today. <laughs>
Probably not. Uh, that's incredible. I mean, what 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 a great ingenuity. I mean, you just you're. I love how you guys were thinking and thinking outside the box and trying to figure out uh, what new materials would be available and what you could use and in, in different yeah. situations. Wow, that's crazy. And then, well, what happened after Maryland? Um, well, uh, I wanted I wanted to go. I wanted to learn German. And so uh, Rosemary had uh, emigrated from uh, from Garmisch Partenkirchen uh, to uh, uh, Boston because she wanted to study physics at MIT. So I wanted to be able to talk to her half of the family. And so we decided we'd uh, go to Europe for a year so I could learn German. And so I had four criteria. I wanted to be in a good academic center. I wanted to speak German. I wanted to ski a lot. I wanted to drink a lot of beer. Uh, those are the four criteria, not necessarily the order, but those were the criteria. <laughs> and I also wanted to learn neuro because my training had really been totally inadequate. And at the time, the best uh, textbook was by Yasher on cerebral angiography was by Yasher Gill and Cryenbull. Uh, I didn't even know that this time that they were neurosurgeons. They were at the uh, Kantonspital in Zurich. That's sort of like Switzerland's mass general. Hmm. And uh, so Yasher Gill was there. Now, Ghazi Yasher Gill. Uh, may not be familiar to body interventionists. He was, with, without question, I think, in anybody's mind, the best neurosurgeon on the planet in 1975. Wow. Uh, the Journal of Neurosurgery, when they talked about neurosurgeons of the half century, the first half century was Harvey, Harvey Cushing, and the second half century was Ghazi Yashergill. Wow. And he was right there. You were there. He was at the Kantonspital, yeah. And that's why I wanted to go there. Now, I had a good moonlighting job, and the, the head of uh, Prince George's Hospital in Cheverly, Maryland, where I was doing that, was Bill Stecker. And he, he had been at the Kantonspital. He knew Professor Vellauer, and uh, he got me the job there with, uh, with Vellauer. Wow. So we, we go off to Zurich uh, for 16 months. I was going to work for 12, and it was two ski seasons <laughs> before and after. Dave, I like your style. <laughs> so... I was going to be doing all the diagnostic procedures on uh, Yasher Gale's patients in uh, two different rooms. Uh, no newer interventional at that time, of course. Right. And uh, we didn't even have a CT scanner. The only one in Switzerland was an ME scanner in uh, Basel. Drove Yasher Gale crazy. But we were doing the typical invasive procedures of the time. And you think about this now and you think, holy cow. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, I did pneumoencephalography on the Siemens Memer 3, which you've never heard of. Yeah, no. This thing was a very sophisticated, huge device. It looked like an electric chair. And you would strap a patient in, just like in an electric chair, arms down at the sides and legs and abdomen and everything. And you'd stick a needle into the lumbar uh, space. You'd do a lumbar puncture. And you'd squirt in, squirt in 40 cc's of air, which was a standard mo amount for pneumos. And then you could rotate this thing in any plane. Uh, so you could turn the patient uh, sideways or upside down or upside down and sideways all the time with a needle in their back. And then you could do tomography in any plane uh, to look at the ventricles. <laughs> uh, fortunately, Yasha Gill wasn't very fond of pneumos, so I didn't have to do many because I was never any good at pneumoencephalography at all. Pneumography uh, <laughs> was... Uh, uh, they had water-soluble contrast. It was the first time I'd seen that. That We didn't have that in the U.S. yet. Huh. Uh, cerebral arteriography was really interesting because uh, Kreinbull, when he was head of uh, the department, Yashagil was now the head, and Kreinbull was uh, retired. He had had uh, Yashagil doing cerebral arteriography for 10 years uh, and also in the lab, which is where Yashagil worked out all his very fancy, elegant techniques. So uh, Yasha Gill was uh, very hung up on direct sticks. So everything I got there, I did there initially was direct stick. And I did hundreds of these things where like the workup for an aneurysm. So patient would come down. I, they'd be put in anesthesia. I'd do a direct stick in one carotid, a hand inject. And if that was negative, leave needle in place, stick the other carotid, hand inject. If that was negative, pull the needles, get hemostasis, wake the patient up. Send them upstairs. Come down the next day, put them asleep again, do a retrograde brachial arteriogram on the left. Now, this is where you'd stick a big needle into the brachial artery in the antecubital space. And then uh, you'd, you'd machine inject this at a high rate of, I think it was around 25 cc's a second. 
Wow. And that would reflux up the subclavian and fill the vertebral and you get a shot at the, uh, of the posterior fossa. And if that were negative, then you'd do a retrobrachial on the other side. And that would be uh, how we would do a uh, workup. There actually, uh, I never used one, but there were some specialized needles they developed for doing direct stick vertebrals. <laughs> I'm not making this up. <laughs> yeah, I have to admit, I actually did that on a couple of occasions when I was trying to stick a carotid and a uh, selective vertebral came up. Uh, fortunately, I didn't uh, hurt anybody with that. <laughs> but uh, eventually, uh, I, I accumulated enough cases that I had done both a catheter arteriogram and a direct stick. And I accosted Yasher Gill in the hall one day with his entourage and said, hey, can I show you some things here? And so I just showed him, he didn't say anything. I just showed him one case after another. I said, catheter and direct stick, catheter, direct stick. And he just held them up to the light in the ceiling. And they were clearly better, the catheter ones. Right. And also you could do the whole procedure in uh, one, uh, sure. one, one sitting. So eventually uh, he, he bought that and he said, okay, do it whatever way you want. And that's how they started doing catheter arteriography at the Kantonspital. That's great. So you're actually bringing new techniques to them. Well, uh, a little bit. Now, uh, I also did a lot of translumbars uh, because I was interested in peripheral arteriography as well. We did high sticks there. Uh, you, you either stick uh, below the renals like I was used to doing or you stick above the celiac uh, at the junction of, uh, of the thoracic and uh, abdominal aorta. And so I did a lot of those. Well, that's uh, quite, a, quite some time ago. Uh, we don't <laughs> Oh yeah, <laughs> that much, unfortunately. <laughs> wow. So, um, so what, what happened um, what next? I mean, you got really good at skiing. How was your German at this point? Oh, my German got better. I, I actually gave a couple of lectures uh, in German, believe it or not. We had about eight different nationalities. I wanted to give some lectures. And the first one, I said, okay, I can give this in good English or bad German. What do you want? And a couple of the Greeks were pretty weak in English. So I lectured in German about bone pathology. <laughs> nice, nice work. Let's <laughs> to my next question. You also did an exhibit at the 1976 RSNA on balloon angioplasty. And how did that happen? Tell us a little bit about that. And that was one of the most incredible bits of luck. Uh, I, I still can't believe it happened, but uh, I was between cases one day. And so early on, you know, walking down the hall in the Rentkin Institute, walk by the place where they have, uh, where they were doing the angios. And on the monitor in the room, I could see a catheter down the lake. I knew it had to be an angioplasty. So I walked in and said, hi, mind if I watch? Because I'd never seen one. And so he says, no, come here. So I, um, so we put the wire through. And then the uh, catheter comes down. Okay, I understand that. But then a balloon goes up. Ooh, I didn't know they were using balloons now. It turned out that was the only place in the world that was. <laughs> and so balloon then, after a while, goes down. Catheter comes back, squirt, arteries open. Really cool. So the guy's taking off his gloves. And I said, gee, that's really neat. I'd never seen an angioplasty before. Hi, I'm Dave Cumpy. He says, hi, I'm Andreas Grinzig. Wow. And I said, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be here for a year. I've never been in a place that did angioplasty. I'd love to learn. Would you mind if I worked with you? And he says, no, come ahead. So that was 1975. Uh, and uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, these two do. But uh, if you don't know, Andreas Grunzig invented, made practical balloon angioplasty and also invented coronary angioplasty and built a balloon. And, uh, so, but in 1970, that was later. And in 1975, nobody knew who he was. Uh, now, I think Grunzig was as important as daughter in getting IR started. It was yeah. 79 when he did the first public. No, it was uh, September 16th of 77 on Adolf Bachmann. Yeah, yeah. But uh, Grunzig was a real interesting character. He's an East German. He was a rather difficult personality, very single-minded. Uh, nobody in radiology liked him. I was the only one in radiology who uh, worked with him. Uh, he had he had some training in internal medicine, in vascular surgery, and in epidemiology. He was interested in coronary artery disease, but he was not a cardiologist and had no training in it. Uh, he was interested in vascular disease. They got these big clinics over there called angiology departments, right. where they get a lot of... Uh, they have a lot of smokers, so they had a lot of peripheral vascular disease. 
And Grinzig started doing angioplasty with the uh, bougie technique, daughter's bougie technique. He'd learned that from Eberhard Zeitler, who learned it from daughter. And the procedures on the schedule were scheduled as Dotton, <laughs> daughter with an N at the end. Yep. Uh, and so whenever I saw one of those, I knew Grinzig would be working. And then um, Andreas's original uh, angioplasties, while he was trying to figure out a balloon, uh, were bougie technique, and he did a fair number of those. But everybody knew that uh, you needed a balloon uh, because you couldn't treat bigger vessels. And nobody had been able to make a uh, practical one. Right. So Andreas set about building a balloon. Mm-hmm. And uh, now Switzerland's MIT, uh, the ETH or ETH, is right across the street from the Kantonspital. So Grunzig went over there and uh, walked in and says, who knows about plastics here? And they say, oh, you want hooks down at the end of the hole now. <laughs> so Grunzig goes to Hopf, tells him what he wants. Hopf says, you want PVC? And Grunzig says, what's that? <laughs> and Hopf says, polyvinyl chloride, you're going to love it. So now Grunzig took this idea from Hopf, and uh, he worked this just on his kitchen table at home and on Maria Schlumpf's kitchen table, his technician. Thanks, Ma. Yeah. They built over 100 different prototypes before they finally found something that worked. Right. And so what worked was this, that he took a sleeve of polyvinyl chloride, and they'd be anywhere from four to eight millimeters in diameter. Polyvinyl chloride has the property that when you heat it up, it shrinks. So he would, and he, he found an engineer who could carve a groove down the outside of a straight angiographic catheter without getting into the lumen. Uh-huh. So he took that kind of catheter, oh. he took a PVC sleeve and put it over the catheter. And then uh, he took a heat gun, uh, you know, a, a hairdryer. And right at the tip of the catheter, he heated it up so the PVC shrank. And then he left a blank space where the balloon was going to be. And then he heated up the rest of the uh, PVC sleeve and it shrank against the uh, shaft of the catheter. He figured out a way to do a uh, dual uh, port uh, entry uh, at the proximal end so you could both inject the catheter and inject contrast in the side port which would go down the uh, groove and fill the balloon. Right. Uh, he figured out a way to glue the PVC to the tip of the catheter. He said, that was hard. <laughs> and I can't. Uh, and so, and, and he had then, and he tried some of them, and the damn things worked. They, were, they had terrible tips. You couldn't put them into an artery very well at all. We didn't have sheaths. Yep. But boy, when you got them there, they worked. And uh-huh. Now Grinzig needed balloons, but he, he didn't have to. He's going 17 directions at once. He hadn't have time to make them. And so he needed a manufacturer, and this is one of the biggest black eyes of the Cook Corporation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cook was the biggest outfit in Europe, catheter. Mm-hmm. He goes to Cook and says, hey, could you guys make this catheter? And so he's explaining what it is to a number of the Cook people and explaining it. And uh, after a while, the answer is, that's just einfach unmöglich. Man kann das nicht machen. Which is, that's impossible. You can't do that. <laughs> and Grinzig said, wait a minute. I just told you how to do it. I told you what to do. <laughs> and the answer to that was, das ist einfach unmöglich. Man kann das nicht machen. <laughs> and so Cook lost out being the first company to have a balloon. <laughs> and uh, so Maria uh, volunteered her husband, Walter Schlumpf, now, Walter was an engineer. I, it had nothing to do with plastics or catheters or medicine. I don't know exactly what kind, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, bright guy. And so Grunzik showed him how to make these things. Now, Walter had a day job. And so he would come home at night and go down in the basement and make these things uh, at night. Wow. And then uh, we would throw them in the side decks and put them into patients. And that the entire year that I was there scrubbing with Andreas, uh, these were all handmade balloons by Walter Schlumpf. <laughs> and I scrubbed on uh, all the angioplasties Grunzig did that year, along with uh, Felix Mahler. We uh, came back in April of 76. And uh, I wanted to, I was just getting started with a, my academic career, wanted to do something at RSNA and decided to do a poster and do it on angioplasty. Uh, and I was too stupid to know how much work a poster was at that time. It was a lot, uh, <laughs> because no computers. Right. And so we made up 12 cardboard panels, very elaborate. Right. Uh, wow. now Andreas is habilitation. So 
when you, uh, you, you don't just join a medical school faculty in Europe, uh, certainly not in Switzerland. You have to do essentially a PhD thesis, mm. uh, and that's called a habilitation. Andreas was absolutely meticulous about follow-up of all of his patients. Uh, he he uh, kept in touch with them, and he was using um, uh-huh. vascular lab data, SLP, you know, submetalline pressures and pulse ion recordings, SLPs, PBRs. Sure. And so he had those. He did follow-up arteriography on something like 80% of his patients uh, of two years. And so he had the data, and he did this appellation on, uh, on all of his data. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he wanted to translate. He, he was published in a little book in German, and he wanted to translate it in English. And he asked me to do that. So uh, Rosemary and I did that. She translated it into English, and I translated it into uh, medical ease. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I don't have that book or the, 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 this was when I was at the VA in 76 and, uh, and Gert Swenson typed it up and I can't find that stuff now. It'd be historic. But anyway, uh, I had all this data. So I, this poster was gorgeous. It was uh, 12 panels. It had the catheter, described the technique, showed some early cases, uh, claudication, some limb salvage cases. Had all of the uh, data, initial results, follow-up data, complications. I mean, it was absolutely exemplary by today's standards. And this was the first public demonstration of balloon angioplasty to the American radiologic community. Okay? Wow. Now, this this idea changed medicine. This was revolutionary. Absolutely. Uh, And (laughs) it got no attention. Was it in a dark corner? Uh, no, uh, it was right out in the middle of everything else. The prize that year, I still remember this, was by uh, done by Rongelio Moncada. He was, I think, the chairman at the University of Illinois. And what he did is he poured red cells in the contrast material and looked at them under a microscope and showed that they crenated. Oh. So that was held to be the most important scientific uh, advance of 1975 at RS, 1976 at RSNA. So I kind of understood Dodder, <laughs> his crying in the wilderness for so long. John Abley uh, did see it. Dodder saw it, uh, Bill Casarella, a couple others. Uh, Abley made a picture of that exhibit and many years later sent me a framed picture he took of it with a nice little plaque at the bottom. Abley is the guy who uh, uh, started uh, Meditech that became Boston Scientific. Uh, he, he's the only billionaire I know. But now... This was this this becomes a very good story for residents. The first person, you know, the, the guy who does the work usually is the first author. And Andreas didn't even know I had done this. I, I just went and did it. And uh, so theoretically, I should put myself as first author because I did that work, but I wasn't about to do that. This is all Andreas's work. So I listed the authorship as uh, Grunzig, Kumpi, Mahler, and, uh, and, and, and didn't think about that. So... A couple of months later, somebody told Andreas, uh, that was a nice exhibit you had at the RSNA. He says, Boss? He said, oh, yeah, there was that exhibit with David Compe and Felix. Uh, and Andreas's first question was, who was first? <laughs> and, uh, and, and so they told him, well, you were. And so he knew that I was intellectually honest. Wow. Okay, now, this, this gets wow. more interesting. The first coronary that Andreas did was, as I said, Adolf Bachmann, September 1677. He's instantly world famous. Unfortunately for Switzerland, fortunately for us, uh, the chief of medicine at the Kantonspital, Walter Sigenthaler, just didn't like Grunzig. Uh, he was not easy to like and really tried to hold his career back. And so Grunzig said, okay, I'm out of here. And he went to Emory yeah. in early 1980 and started their angioplasty program there. I was now how he got from Zurich to... Well, it was that. It was Walter Siegenthaler. And just trying to... He, he just couldn't get done what he wanted to do. And he had a real clear vision of where he wanted to go. And uh, Siegenthaler was just standing in the way. Everybody wanted this guy. But uh, one of the things Grunzig insisted on, he wanted to be a professor. And that was a hang-up in some other programs. And Willis Hurst was willing to do that for him. They actually had to do something with the state legislature to get that done. But they got it done. And so Grunzig was there. And I, I had seen him in a number of different situations, and he was really creative and better getting out of trouble than anyone mm. I ever saw. And uh, there are a number of stories about that, but I, I, in the interest of time, we'll go on. I, but I think I'm probably unique because uh, I have been on both sides of the catheter 
with Andreas. Remember, it's always better to be the herder than the herdee. But uh, wait a minute, what? You yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, so '83. I, I was I was really fit, and uh, I got interested in biking. And I was going to do some bike racing, and so I had this my bike on a trainer in our garage. Uh-huh. In uh, January, and it'd be about 35 degrees, and I'd be out there pedaling, and I get this retrotracheal ache. Hmm. And the first time it happened, I'm 41 years old, and the first time it happened, uh, I, I said, gee, I wonder if that could be angiomat. Nah, couldn't be that. I had no risk factors, and boy, I, I was really fit at that time. Right. Uh, and so um, I let it go for a couple of months, and how stupid and denial <laughs> You are. I mean, a couple of times when I was riding, I, 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 it would go down my arm and center my wrist. <laughs> and I finally decided after a couple of months, well, gee, maybe I ought to get this checked out. And of course, I had a four plus positive <laughs> treadmill. And I didn't want anybody but Andreas touching that catheter. Right? If, he, if there was any trouble, I wanted him figuring out what it was. So I called down there. It usually was a couple of months, but I, I got an appointment the next week. Wow. And uh, so Andreas did the, uh, arteriogram. And at that time, it wasn't find it, fix it. He'd think about what he wanted to do. And then the following day, do the angioplasty. Gotcha. So I had a, an isolated 98% narrowing of my LAD. Wow. But it was, it, it, I found out later, it, it was called a widow maker. <laughs> it's, <laughs> uh, it's the same lesion that Adolf Bachman had. Yeah. And so next day, well, I'm supposed to have the angioplasty and Rosemary's there. And I got, my case got bumped because there was an emergency. So Rosemary and Andreas and I are just sitting in a room waiting for this case to finish. And so I'm asking Andreas, and why me? What's going on here? Uh, I, and and uh, yeah. I don't have any risk factors. And Andreas says, it's the arterial flu. I said, what? <laughs> Andreas says, it's the arterial flu. Said, Andreas, what the hell are you talking about? He says, those risk factors, you know, diabetes, hypertension, lipids, family history, and so on. Um, those are not the causative factor. Those are exacerbating factors. The cause is the arterial flu, and you had the arterial flu. Now, that was 83. And so uh, subsequent to that, all this stuff has come out about inflammation being the initiating thing with atheromatosis. Right, right. Uh, and, uh, but, but he was just way ahead of his time. Absolutely. And I've had no further problems. He popped it open, no stent or anything. And I've had no further problems with coronary disease ever since. So wow. it probably was the arterial flu. <laughs> so now I, this is a story I tell to the residents is why you never, ever, ever take credit for somebody else's work. Right. Because just think, suppose I put my name as first author, after all, I'd done the exhibit. Exactly. And now I needed Andreas to save my life. <laughs> so... um I, I see a serendipity, like this theme of serendipity with you, Dave, kind of coming over. And over. That's I mean, I've been so lucky all along the way uh, that, you know, I, I, a lot of the early developments in IR came from Europe. Uh, and I got to meet a lot of the early drivers of that, particularly in vascular disease, uh, Seitler, Laszlo Horvath, Von Andel, Olbert, Klaus Matthias. Right. I also got, uh, I'm going back to Neuroform, and I, I went over for a week, spent a week in Paris with Rene Gingin, who was the guy who was the guru and pioneered spinal arteriography. So it was a great experience over there. Wow, my goodness. How lucky. I mean, you, you saw an opportunity, you took it. Uh, well, <laughs> you'd rather be lucky than good, and I've had much more than my share. <laughs> that is fantastic. Wow. Anybody else in, in North America at that time that you were? Well, I see, daughter was in 63 in, in Prague at a conference. Daughter said that uh, used with imagination, that famous quote about used with imagination, the angiographic catheter can become a surgical instrument uh, and we can treat disease conditions. Uh, he got a standing ovation at that conference. And at that time, there were a few places that um, people were doing individual stuff. There was Daughter and Rush at, uh, uh, in, in Oregon and then Kurt Amplatz and uh, Stan Baum and then Stan Cope in Philadelphia and probably a couple others, Berhenny in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. But this was all just individual little procedures that were being done at that place. And IR really didn't exist as a um, specialty. Yeah. Wow. So can, do you, can you kind of unpack a little bit for uh, our audience uh, how IR started in the U.S.? I mean, we kind of have all these different 
uh, sort of you know luminaries of the field uh, in their own individual departments doing their own thing. But how how did it start uh, across the U.S.? Um, well, that's why I think Grunzig is so important uh, because um, in 1978, for the first time, you could buy a, a, a balloon catheter. You could get a balloon catheter and you could fix vascular disease. And that was the springboard to me that uh, you could start doing cases first in vascular disease. But then that got people thinking all over the country, uh, re, uh, angiographers, what else could we do with a catheter? And that very shortly brought in uh, some of the other work being done in livers and kidneys and so on. And IR is really interesting as a specialty because. It's the only specialty I know of that, uh, other than interventional cardiology a little later, that it started all over the country as an organized specialty in a very short prescribed period of time. And it would individual people in all the different centers. I was the first one in Colorado. When I got here, I said, this is what I want to do. I don't want to read x-rays. And uh, but before then, in Denver, Chuck Seibert at uh, Swedish Neil Goodman over at uh, St. A's had done uh, an occasional interventional procedure, but mostly they did nothing but diagnostic arteriography. The time just wasn't right. So uh, once I had that balloon catheter and got started with that, uh, I got to start IR um, as a uh, specialty in this Rocky Mountain, the whole Rocky Mountain region. I was the first one. And what I was doing here was people all over the country did that at their various medical centers. And we all had the same problem that uh, there wasn't any senior experienced partner who can tell you uh, how to do this or uh, teach you how to do this. Uh, we're all doing things for the first time. And so it was just, you know, somebody who'd done a couple of cases. So you call them and say, how do you do with us? And so, I mean, the, I did the first tips here and uh, I knew in general how to, what a tips was and how, uh, how it was done. But, and Jan was going to be doing those, uh, and she had done all the preliminary work, uh, but she happened to be out of town when this first case that needed it came up. And so uh, I had to do it. And so I just called up Arena Van Brita at Fairfax Hospital in Alexandria. It's now Inova. And uh, just said, hey, hey, Ren, how do you do a TIPS? Because I knew she'd done a couple. She said, oh, it's simple. Here, let me tell you. <laughs> so she told me how to do a TIPS. I went and I did it. <laughs> And that's how all those early cases uh, kind of went. <laughs> wow, that's right. I mean, you got some, you got some tools in your uh, in your handbag, and then uh, you just do it. You call the people who've done a few and and learn from there. Yeah. Well, how how did you get to the University of Colorado from Zurich? Well, I I, uh, I really wanted to be in Colorado. I had a, uh, an offer to go back to the MGH after uh, finishing uh, NIH, uh, but in the Harvard system, you're expected. They want you to develop an area and they wanted me to develop their parathyroid program. And uh, I'm quite sure had I gone back there by now today, I would be without question the premier parathyroid arteriographer on the planet. <laughs> Whoopee. <laughs> but uh, I wanted to be in Colorado. It took a year to get here and I couldn't have come into a better situation. Uh, it was, it was just so different from what most guys uh faced uh right right because you and you've got good skiing and cycling here i mean it, it seems to make sense and but when you came here did you have any opposition at colorado i mean you're uh, new guy coming here from the east coast in europe well actually it was it was more the idea of doing uh interventional because most of most of my colleagues in other medical centers or at least an awful lot of them ran into a lot of resistance uh there were there was uh the surgeons were real happy about it uh hal coons is at uh Sharp Hospital. He's in my vintage. He's my vintage, and he tells a story that sort of uh, crystallizes that. He says, "Well, you got a, a surgeon here, and he's making a really good living his whole life doing this procedure. So you go to him and you say, you know, I've got this thing I do. Uh, it does the same thing as your surgical procedure. It's much easier on the patient. I can do it as an outpatient, uh, and the patients like it much better. They don't get their they don't get cut open, and it's cheaper." What do you think? And Hal says, you can't expect the guy to say, thank you. I'm so glad I know that. <laughs> and that's really what the story was, that uh, there was a lot of concern about these procedures uh, replacing surgery. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, Colorado, uh, they were really weak when I got here in Catherine geography. Uh, uh, Derek Stables uh, was here doing GU diagnosis, and he was doing some nephrostomies, and I learned that from him. And uh, at, at the U, um, people saw in vas- the other surgeons saw that in vascular, I could do what I said I could do. And they started listening to me when I said, hey, I could help you with this or that. And they started sending cases. And that period from uh, roughly 78 or so to uh, uh, the late 80s, it was just almost like a procedure a week. It was just an explosion of new procedures. And I was always looking for something new in different areas. What, what, what's a tube and what can I do with it? You know, and livers, kidneys, aorta, uh, the fallopian tubes, uh, dialysis, yeah. lysis, tumors. Uh, embolizing AVMs and so on. And then what's the toughest thing you could do with a catheter? And uh, I, I was known to be pretty aggressive. And I, I, there was this one time <laughs> some surgical residents came down with a case and I said, yeah, no, nah, nah, there's some things you can't fix with a catheter. And they really wanted me to sign a piece of paper that I've actually said that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I was able to do a lot of, uh, you know, we were the first uh, uh, doing stuff. And so I was able to start a lot of new procedures in Colorado. I got this list somewhere of uh, more than 40 things I did for the first time that was done in the state. It was done at the U, not the first time in the country, but the fir- I, I introduced it to uh, the state. So in one sense, I really got to spearhead the development of IR in, uh, in Colorado. Wow, that, that's really fantastic, Dave. I mean, uh, you just listen to you tell these stories. I mean, and I'm reminded about that in my current practice and our surgeons and our patients really uh, rely on a good IR to be inquisitive and curious and really, you know, take appropriate risks when necessary to really kind of push boundaries. And the, the things that we can do with a catheter uh, through a small incision or even no incision sometimes now is really, really remarkable. And that kind of leads me to my next question is like, well, I mean, we all have, seems like we're spoiled now with all this great equipment, but what was the angio equipment like uh, at that time when you're in, in the seventies and eighties? Oh boy, is that a setup? You have no idea. You don't think about digital, but uh, digital came in uh, sometime in the very late '80s or early '90s, mm-hmm. and before then it was film, and that was awful because sometimes you couldn't do just a quick score to contrast and see where you were, and you needed to do an angio run. And the, the regular angio runs were on 14 by 14 films. You do a run, and then initially uh, the films would take three minutes each. To develop. So there was this big, long pause while you would have a run of 15 films come out, put them up on the view box, then look to see what you did next. We eventually got processors that did that in 90 seconds. That was a big improvement, <laughs> but there was still the pause. And then there was these little spot films that would be a long, continuous roll of films. And, oh, the, the pictures were about maybe uh, eight centimeters across. And those, you could, you know, you would be just developing one film. So we did a lot of spot filming. You take subtraction for granted. Uh, I don't know if that many people these days know how subtraction was done initially. It's done electronically in the same way now. But you would take a, uh, uh, if you wanted a subtraction, uh, the tech would take the mask. So you'd have a blank, uh, you know, before any contrast. Take that into the dark room, shine light through it. And it would you get a reversal onto a film, mm-hmm. uh, and you take that mask, uh, then hold that up and line up with the film you were going to subtract until you got as rid of of, of as little uh, uh, misregistration as possible, and tape the film together, and then shine a light through that onto another film, <laughs> and that would be the subtracted film. Wow. So this was a very elaborate process and took the techs a lot of time that. There were some techs who were really skilled at it, and they were precious as they could be. I'm sure. Uh, but I, I, you must think all the complex things we do now, you just couldn't do that with film. So uh, digital was really key. Right. I mean, it's not only is it just shortened the procedure, but it's really expanded dramatically what we can do, uh, right? And uh, how, how long did a standard angiogram in that era take? Oh, it... Um, Oh, a carotid would be probably an hour, something. Yeah. I remember Bob Breeze, when, when, when we started working together, uh, he was used to having the neuroradiologists do the uh, angios, and they kind of struggled. 
and he was there once when I did one, and I did four vessels, and uh, we were talking about the results and everything. And after we finished talking about that, he was said to someone else, he just did those four vessels in 12 minutes. Uh, and Bob wasn't used to that. So we figured out I, I could use a catheter. Right. That's good. And, and speaking of catheters, uh, what about the angio tools and catheters and wires? Uh, well, it was all just standard angiographic uh, diagnostic stuff. Uh, the, 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 the balloon catheters uh, were very primitive. They were all eight millimeters or left, less, no stents. Uh, we had gel foam for embolization, eventually got PBA. Uh, when we started lysis, it was streptokinase. Right. And uh, so we were just using these simple tools in different organ systems and try to use them in different ways. And then we finally started getting specialized wires and catheters and stents. I mean, the company catheter wound up being useful uh, uh, in, in a lot of different ways. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I think this is this is like the point of what everybody's like wanting to ask, wanting, wanting me to ask you about this. I mean, like uh, the company catheter, I mean, it, it's in such a staple, you know, in our in our uh, armamentarium. I mean, it's our go-to catheter for so many cases uh, around the world, probably. Tell me about how, how did you come about developing this specific catheter? It became known as the company catheter with your name. Oh, there was a lot of research that went into that over many years. Uh, yeah. So the story was that uh, when I got back uh, after the Kantonspital, um, most of the angioplasties that we did, or at least a great deal of them, were um, SFEM. And so you had to do a downhill stick. We didn't go up and over that. And so uh, doing a downhill stick, so of course, the needle is pointing down. And in the common femoral artery, uh, the uh, profunda comes off posteriorly. And uh, so it was hard to put a wire into the SFEM because the stupid wire kept going into the uh, profunda. So I, I really wanted some way. Again, we didn't have steerable wires or good catheter or anything. So I needed some way to get into the uh, superficial femoral. So I just talked to Cook and said, hey, could you make up a short little catheter and just put a little hook at the end? And uh, so uh, they made up a couple of them. And, and it worked. I could put the thing into the um, uh, profunda. And then just pull it back under fluoro and point it up and squirt, squirt, squirt. When you saw the SFEM, then shove in the wire. Right. And so uh, they started making the company catheter for us. And uh, we were using it at the VA and in, uh, in, in our shop. And uh, I was using it for that purpose. And I was talking to the guy at the VA one day and he said, you know, this thing's good for a lot of other stuff too. I said, oh, really? And he <laughs> said, oh, yeah, it's good for livers and kidneys and all sorts of stuff, uh, even iliacs. And so I said, okay, I'll try it. And sure enough, it was. And uh, so Marshall Hicks was one of my early fellows, and uh, he liked the catheter. And his first job was with Dan Pikus at Malincrod. Uh -huh. So Marshall shows the catheter to Dan. Dan was running some national conferences, and he really liked the catheter. So he would hold it up at his conferences and say, hey, this is really a great catheter. You guys ought to start using it. And uh, so the word gradually spread, and the cook guys told me, Oh, a number of years ago, that it, it is the top-selling catheter in the world. <laughs> but you know, all those years of development that it took, you know. <laughs> again, serendipity. Uh, uh, you you are like in the right place at the right time. Yeah, and made the right guess without having an I any idea how good it, how useful it was. <laughs> so. Maybe some people also asking about the Berenstein catheters, very similar catheter. Um, what was what was going on between the two designs there? Um, can you explain maybe a little? Well, Alex at that time had a, a there wasn't torque control uh, of, uh, catheters had lousy torque control. And Alex had um, USCI, I think, make up a seven French catheter that was tapered to five French over the distal 10, 15 centimeters, and then put a little hook at the end of it. And that came out, I, I don't know, I think they both came out around the same time. I think maybe the company a little beforehand, but I'm, I, I just don't remember. A Berenstein catheter sort of was a staple of neuroangiography uh, until we got decent uh, catheters right. like we have today. And so that then they started making uh, the Berenstein without the uh, 7 to 5 taper, and they started it, it with the same angle tip. They uh, then started to shorten it for some things. And so it basically is sort of a longer version 
Right. What I had is a shorter version. And uh, so, I mean, the way uh, Cook and uh, AngioDynamics make this thing, and I don't know, somebody else probably does too. And uh, uh, the, the copies go up to about 65 or so. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of neuro, you, you've done uh, uh, INR actually for many years. And um, how did you sort of morph into that? I mean, you had a great career in body IR, brought a lot of great procedures to Colorado and obviously made a name for yourself there. But how, how did um, you sort of morph into an INR? Well, it started out with stroke. Um, and this was 1988. And uh, I came into the department one morning uh, and just as I'm coming in, there's this overhead page. Dr. Company, will you come back to the angio suite? So I go back there, big, long uh, line of films on the view box. And uh, Glenn Kent, the chief of neurosurgery, is there in the control room. So this is a young guy in his 30s somewhere, and he'd been whapped up the left side of his neck in a uh, bar fight. And shortly thereafter, had gone uh, hemiplegic and aphasic. And what these films uh, that they'd done showed was that he had uh, almost totally occlusive, but not quite, clot at his M1, M2 junction. And Glenn Kent was there, uh, and uh, he was an aggressive guy. And so he told the neuroradiologist, gee, this guy's going to do bad. You should put some urokinase up there. Uh, a neuroradiologist said, Cold Cumpy, he'll do anything. So hence the page. So uh, I knew about... UK being used for strokes, uh, I was vaguely aware of a couple of papers. I never actually read one of them. And at that particular point, there were, as I went back, there were about 20 some cases in the literature and only four reported from the US. So I go back there and uh, Glenn said, tell me, uh, you should put some urokinase up there. And I said, gee, I don't know. I never put urokinase in anybody's head before. He said, this guy's going to do real bad. So I said, well, okay. And uh, I didn't have any uh, microcatheter, and I had no idea of dose, so I just put a catheter in his internal and started the standard dose, 250 an hour, and uh, was running it. And this is still one of the most dramatic things I, I, I have ever seen in my career. So they'd gone in the right side. It's a left carotid, so right side's paralyzed. And after about 50 minutes, I can feel the guy moving his hand under the drapes. What? <laughs> and at an hour... He had a normal strength grip. Wow. And this thing wound up being a total home run. Had a couple of kids and everything. And Lazarus fixed a stroke. That's fantastic. And I did another one. Within a couple of months, uh, they sent me another one. It was a basilar occlusion, long basilar occlusion. And the guy was comatose. Uh, I, I did a, I, I got the thing open completely. It was a beautiful angiogram, but he remained comatose. It was just too late. Yeah. But it was proof of concept, and I took it, <laughs> I took it to the neurologists. Uh, I, I, went, I went into a, one of the grand rounds with these couple of cases and said, guys, we can treat stroke. We can treat stroke. And I made the strategic error of mentioning a quick and dirty physical exam, and, which became the NIH stroke scale, and two in the morning. Wow. And there was zero interest. <laughs> they just were not interested. And uh, it wasn't until the uh, mid-2000s that we finally got our stroke program going. It kind of sputtered along before wow. then. But uh, that got me interested again in the head. Uh, NIR in the early 80s, uh, or actually even uh, late 80s, was uh, uh, a real young specialty. And uh, Grant Kishima came to town and talked at the Rocky Mountain Radiologic Society later in 88. Uh -huh. And uh, that's the first time I'd ever seen him showing some of the stuff he was doing. I, I was blown away. I thought I knew everything. I was pretty arrogant at the time. <laughs> and uh, this was stuff I just didn't know. And so I got interested in this, said, geez, I want to look at this. And uh, there weren't many places you could go. I went out to Grant's place at UCSF for uh, two weeks. And there were only a couple of Grant was one. Uh, Chuck Kerber was at Pittsburgh, went to UCSD, Alex Berenstein at NYU, Bob Ferguson was in uh, Tennessee, uh, maybe one or two others. But basically, there wasn't very many places out there doing anything. So anyway, um, I went to Grant for two weeks and watched his cases and thought, man, this is cool. I want to learn this. Nice. Uh, and I knew I had to get updated the techniques. And so I had to take a sabbatical. And Grant wanted me to come for two years and said, Grant, I just can't do that. I mean, look, I'm, I'm a full professor. I'm, I'm 
head of the section. And uh, I just can't take that much time. The most I could do was six months. Mm. And uh, Berenstein was uh, agreed to have me come for six months. And I, by that time, Jan was at our place and she'd been there a year or two. And she was just fantastic. She was superb. And uh, so we talked about it and we both decided together that she could handle a service for six months. So I went off to Alex for six months and watched his cases. And uh, not exactly the two years that uh, trainees do these days, but I learned what I needed to know and got back, started really slowly with cases and only took stuff I thought I could handle. Smart. Then there were another couple people in town that were also starting at uh, different, the two other hospitals at exactly the same time as Bob Siegel and uh, John Whitaker over at St. A's and uh, Wayne Hanks at Swedish. And we would occasionally scrub together on some cases and sort of learn together there. Interesting. But in neuro is different. I, uh, yeah, I, I gradually got more comfortable, but, uh, they're scary cases. Right. Right. And it, it was just me and NIR and around 2000, I had so much neuro business. I finally had to pull myself off the body schedule. Uh, uh, but I also uh, figured that my other partners, if I tried to hang on to like stent grafts and all the, all the cool procedures, neuro and body, right. somebody was going to shoot me. So <laughs> better uh, leave uh, the body stuff to uh, my partners. And very quickly, uh, you know, like a, a number of years later, I realized I, I couldn't do body IR anymore. I was out of date. Wow. I knew the diseases, not the widgets. Right. It moved that fast. And I couldn't do body IR. So, I, I mean, it was pretty embarrassing. I was a CAQ examiner uh, for many years. I can't do it anymore. <laughs> yeah, the field really moves fast. <laughs> it sure does, doesn't it? That's amazing. So you retired, though, recently, right? And Yeah, I was retired. I had choice of timing was not mine. Most vascular neurosurgeons stop operating by the time they're 60 or 65. Uh -huh. And uh, I was... Uh, 77. And, uh, just, there's some concern that, uh, people start looking and saying, isn't this guy getting a little long in the tooth to be doing this kind of stuff. And I'd already backed off doing aneurysms about a, a year, my last year, but, uh, it's, it's better to go out while there's still some cheers in the room. And, uh, it was a great year, a great 42 year career, 43 now, cause I'm a professor emeritus and, uh, uh, had just a great career there. It occurred to me, uh, somewhere along the way that almost never uh, does an academic doc get to start an entirely new program that didn't exist wow. and have that become totally vital to the function of the hospital. And at Colorado, I got to do that twice with both body IR and then neuro IR. And uh, man, I just talk about being in the right place, right time and having that opportunity. When I retired, uh, the chairman uh, created this uh, David Company endowed chair of radiology, which cost the department two million. That was really satisfying. I was really happy with that. Yeah, well, well done. Uh, yeah, there's uh, where I came from, and there's a daughter chair also, and I, I think that's important for you, know, you came from the, the fountain. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's important. You know, these these endowed chairs are very important for for uh, uh, for honoring your legacy and mm -hmm. your contributions to the to the field. Uh, things that we all take for, I think, unfortunately, take for granted in our daily work. But it's been really, uh, really enjoyable, uh, you know, talking to you today. One one last question I have for you, Dave, is about Western Angio. Obviously, with COVID, we're, we're not going to be at um, Western Angio this year, and we're all pretty disappointed about it. But I just wanted to ask you what your uh, impression is uh, with uh, Western Angio and Inter Interventional Society. What does it mean to you uh, as a meeting? I mean, we have SIR, we have Circe in Europe, and there's a thousand meetings and there's ski meetings, as you talked about earlier, which are very important to me too. But what is it about Western Angio? What's the secret sauce to that meeting uh, that you really enjoy? Oh, I, that's uh, one of my two favorite meetings. Uh, it, it, uh, it's the oldest society. Uh, and uh, my first one was actually the 26th annual in 96 in uh, Hawaii. Uh, but it's, it's got a, it's a manageable size is, is, it's growing and I hope it doesn't get too much bigger. Uh, it's always in a nice location. Right. It's got a, uh, uh, the topics are usually more practical. I learn more going to Western Angio and there are a lot of how I do it type talk, uh, talks and, uh, the talks are long enough 
that uh, you can go into things a little bit more and they're flexible how long the talks are depending on uh, what the topic is. Then during the whole meeting, there's time to talk with uh, some of the attendees. You get some questions about this or that. You have time to talk with the guy who gave the, uh, or the woman who gave the, uh, gave the, the, the presentation. And then there are these different social events where you get to talk with people more and you get to know people and you see them year after year. Uh, and uh, uh, so you kind of grow old together. You know, it's it's uh, it's just and it's got just a great atmosphere. That is absolutely true. I mean, I, that's why I really enjoy going back every year, uh, you know, I'll give a lecture here and there. But but I, I really enjoy uh, seeing my old friends and meeting new friends too. Yeah. You know, new colleagues from around the, the, the country and it's not just West coast. Now there are some people from the East coast coming in now <laughs> occasionally, yeah. uh, like Aaron Fishman from Sinai uh, yeah. uh, a few years ago uh, in Hawaii. So it's a very, but don't tell too many people about it. We don't want the damn thing to grow so big. I know that's the, that's the thing, right? <laughs> to ourselves. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, Dave, I, I just want to wrap up here and I, I just really appreciate you coming on today. Um, I knew you would be a great uh, guest for the show because um, the uh, first time I met you, you may not remember, but it was at a dinner at uh, the French restaurant Mizuna here in town. And I had taken my wife out for a um, for a nice birthday meal and we ended up sitting next to you and Rosemary and uh, we had just the most enjoyable uh, conversation that night uh, listening to your stories and I knew you had a lot to tell. So thanks for uh, unpacking some of your history and uh, experience with interventional radiology and your contributions uh, to it. It's been really wonderful talking to you. Uh, well, I've had a great time. Really, thank appreciate very much the invitation to do this. You bet.